Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com. I'm Alex Ewell. Welcome to a new season of The Readback. If you want to understand how investors responded to the pandemic, IPOs might be the easiest place to look. Even as Americans struggled to stay healthy and make ends meet, startups were going public in near-record numbers. It was the best period for initial public offerings since the 90s and the birth of the internet. By uprooting our lives, the pandemic opened the door for trying new things. And that included betting on all sorts of fresh ideas. Over the coming weeks, we'll explore the origins of our latest IPO explosion and why investors, amid lockdowns, became obsessed with risky startups, regardless of profits. In our new season of The Readback, we'll wind back the clock and unravel the stories of the companies behind the biggest and most fascinating IPOs to answer a key question. How do we put a price on innovation? It was December 10th of last year, the first day of trading for Airbnb, which had just gone public. Airbnb was among the largest companies in America, worth some 20 to $30 billion. But the bigger a company gets, the harder it is to stay private. The public markets remain the ultimate source of capital. Nearly a century worth of government regulation is built around pushing companies to trade their stock on big exchanges like the NASDAQ and New York Stock Exchange. Airbnb had survived the early part of the pandemic, barely. And after a few delays, the company finally saw a window for an initial public offering, better known as an IPO. And in this case, it was very much worth the wait. With Airbnb, the stock was priced at $68 a share, valuing the company at a whopping $47 billion. But Airbnb's big first day wasn't just about its own business. It was about all the excitement around IPOs more generally. Just a day earlier, DoorDash had seen its stock double on its first public trade. $102 is the IPO price for DoorDash. Giving the food delivery company a market value of $72 billion. Investors' reaction to Airbnb's debut was a surprise even to the people who knew the company best, particularly CEO Brian Chesky, who had been shaking up the hotel industry ever since founding the company in 2008. Now, we just got indication on your opening price. Shares indicated to open right now at $139 a share, which is more than double what you priced at. That's the first time I've heard that number. Chesky is stunned. His eyebrows hit the top of his forehead. He hesitates for a beat before answering the question and says, Um, that is, that's a... And then he kind of stumbles through. I, you know, when we, in April... Now, I've never been declared a billionaire, so I can't speak to the feeling. But clearly, Chesky was surprised, even humbled by it all. So, I, I don't know what else to say. It, it's that that's a that's a that's a very that that's I'm very humbled by it. And um, you know, we know that we're on a very. But to someone paying close attention, this really wasn't a surprise. In fact, Wall Street had been preparing for this moment for at least five years. That had been the gestation period for all those unicorns the now-famous term for private companies with values of $1 billion or more. Airbnb and DoorDash were only two of hundreds, many of which you probably use. The exuberance for ride-sharing, food delivery, and home-sharing didn't seem all that compatible to a lockdown world. And yet, somehow, the companies ultimately thrived. Not just DoorDash and Airbnb. 
The list of past and present unicorns includes Peloton, Zoom Video, Instacart, Robinhood, Slack Technologies, and many more. All of them were disruptive in ways that gave them a big quarantine advantage. And each time one of them went public, investors were desperate to get in on the action. By the end of 2020, investors had shaken off the pandemic and created what's arguably the greatest six-month stretch ever for IPOs. Yes, even rivaling the heady years of the late 90s, when the creation of the internet sparked a crazy rally in anything with .com in its name. But the IPO frenzy almost didn't happen. In fact, less than two years ago, it looked like the whole jig could be up. Now that 2019 is almost over, what should we do with all these beaten down IPO names that came public earlier in the year? Only become duds right out of the gate or peak not soon after. Even worse was the company that didn't go public at all. WeWork was supposed to be the highlight of the 2019 IPO market. The company that popularized shared working space and tried to sell itself as a tech business was valued at nearly $50 billion heading into that year. By the end of the year, the company could barely give itself away. The troubles of WeWork and Uber and how that turned into the successes of DoorDash and Airbnb speaks to the importance of timing and just how fickle the IPO market can be. And nobody could have imagined a worse time for IPOs than 2020. Everyone was wrong. When COVID came, it was like it turbocharged the kinds of companies that tapped the IPO market. It made new economy companies, digital companies, cloud-based, vaccine, biotechs, the kinds of companies that are typical of IPOs. Once the fear got off, which wasn't very long, these companies just soared. That's Kathleen Smith. She's the co-founder of Renaissance Capital, which creates indexes and exchange-traded funds built around the IPO market. Basically, Renaissance creates a basket of stocks that gives investors a one-stop shop for plain, recently public companies. Kathleen is an expert in the IPO world. As we were putting together this season, we spoke to venture capitalists, academics, and portfolio managers, each of whom bring a different perspective on IPOs and the public markets. You'll hear them throughout this episode and in the coming weeks. Kathleen's ETF is a who's who of hot young tech companies, including many we've already mentioned, and other names you might know like Beyond Meat, Pinterest, and Palantir. The ETF has crushed the broader stock market. Even with the recent weakness in tech stocks, it's up over 90% in the last 12 months. But the story of these turbocharged IPOs, to use Kathleen's words, is not an overnight success story. Well, I think that we should start by looking at just how many private companies stayed private for so long. There are currently about 4,000 public companies in the U.S. stock market, down from nearly 8,000 in the 1990s. Basically, stock market investors were being given less opportunity to buy into companies. And that had broad implications for finance, innovation, and entrepreneurship, most of them not good. I think that was the first sort of siren call about how unusual the markets had become because we had never seen such a backlog of companies that chose to remain private. And I think that comes out of the JOBS Act. The JOBS Act, or its full title, the Jumpstart Our Business Startups Act. Congress loves a good acronym, 
and it's hard to vote against anything with jobs in its name. The wide-reaching 2012 law comes up all the time when talking to people about the evolution of IPOs. A decade ago, as private markets were going crazy, lawmakers suddenly began thinking about what it meant for their constituents, whose retirement accounts were now built around access to public markets and a healthy pipeline of investment opportunities. The fear was venture capitalists and private dollars had begun to corner that market, and that was becoming a political problem. Companies were going public later, and there was this view that public markets were kind of broken and that the rise of the unicorn was bad. That's Henry Ellenbogen, a longtime portfolio manager for mutual fund giant T. Rowe Price, who now runs his own shop called Durable Capital. Henry owned both private and public company stock in his T. Rowe mutual fund, which gave him a unique perspective on IPOs. And it made him the ideal candidate to serve on a task force set up by the Obama administration to advise Congress on the JOBS Act. I actually served on that. And there was a bunch of recommendations made. Those recommendations included favorable tax treatment for IPO investors, better information from companies leading up to their IPOs, and a quicker on-ramp for small companies to go public. Remember, all of this came in the context of lingering fallout from the 2008 financial crisis and housing bust. The economic rebound was slower than most had hoped. A decline in IPOs had somehow become symbolic of America's waning financial prowess. One thing that's nice about IPOs is they're eminently trackable. Some of the best data comes from Jay Ritter, a University of Florida business professor who spent years tracking every single angle of the IPO market. During the 1990s, there were an average of 400 IPOs every year, according to Ritter's data. The number started falling after the dot-com bubble burst in 2000. By 2008, it was just 21. Normally, when you have a crisis, risk capital flees the game. That's Aswath Damodaran, who teaches corporate finance at NYU's Stern School of Business and is known fondly as the Dean of Valuation. When he says risk capital, he means money dedicated to riskier investments, including the volatile world of IPOs. People stop investing in IPOs. You know, generally, all the things that risk capital goes to dry up, which means in a crisis, young companies, risky companies are in serious danger. So it's no surprise that IPOs went away during the Great Recession. But when they barely returned after the crisis, Washington lawmakers decided they had to step in. Thank you. And on April 5th, Hello, 2012, everybody. they did. Please, please have a seat. Good afternoon. You know, one of the great things about America is that we are a nation of doers. Not just talkers, but doers. We think big. We take risks. This is a country that... President Obama stood in the Rose Garden, surrounded by a crowd of people like AOL's founder Steve Case and House Majority Leader Eric Cantor to announce the new bipartisan law. Here's what's going to happen because of this bill. For business owners who want to take their companies to the next level, this bill will make it easier for you to go public. And for startups and small businesses, this bill is a potential game changer. The Jobs Act was a game changer, but not in the way everyone imagined. While the act was intended to ease the on-ramp to going public, for those big unicorns, it actually offered a cloak of secrecy, meaning the ability to file confidential paperwork with the SEC and the ability to take on more private investors before ever going public. Back in 2012, Facebook, which we'll come back to in detail this season, had been forced to go public before it wanted to. 
At the time, the law limited the number of investors a private company could have to just 500. Once you hit that threshold, an IPO is all but required. With the Jobs Act, the number went to 2,000 investors, and companies took advantage, pulling in more cash from private investors and doing everything possible to put off an IPO. In 1999, the average age for a tech company going public was five. A decade later, it was more than 10. For traditional IPOs, the Jobs Act did the very opposite of what it was supposed to do. In the end, the Jobs Act actually prevented companies from going public. The river of private money just kept flowing, helping startups get bigger and bigger. That's how Uber and Airbnb reached multi-billion dollar valuations well before their IPOs. But eventually, the dam was bound to break. And that's what happened around the summer of 2020. Here's Kathleen Smith again. Anyone who follows the IPO market knows that when prices are down, when the market's correct, when they drop, when we go through any bad times, the IPO window closes really fast. So we saw the IPO window close with that drop around COVID, but it opened up very fast because the returns just shot up. So we started to see the volume pick up. And then the latter half of 2020 has become a record of IPO issuance that we haven't seen anything like it, I think, in the history of the IPO market. All these companies that had grown massively in private were now flooding the IPO market, and investors cannonballed in, even if the rapids were sweeping them away. That's how we got so many big companies adding billions of dollars in market value on their first day of trading. For growth-starved investors, there was suddenly no price too high to pay for innovation. Here's Aswath Damodaran again. So the big question is, what is it about this 2020 crisis that led risk capital to behave very differently than it has in almost every historical crisis? That question about risk and why investors became so willing to put it aside, especially in the middle of a pandemic, is one historians will be studying for years. So why not start now? In some ways, every IPO is built upon the IPOs that came before it the recent ones, and even the ones from years ago. Bankers remember what worked, and they definitely remember what didn't. So we'll spend this season on The Readback studying some of the most important stock market debuts, from well-known companies like Facebook and Uber to more niche plays like Moderna and Beyond Meat. The thing about IPOs is they begin well before that first day of trading. There's months and sometimes years of preparation. We'll take you through the making of the IPO, from the paperwork to the pricing to the party, and why no one ever seems happy with the process. What you're going to see coming out of 2020 is perhaps a change in the IPO process. And that's why I know some people are saying this is a sign of a bubble. That's, that's one way to read it. But another is it's a sign that the IPO process is broken, and it is deeply broken. For now, IPOs aren't going away. And there's still a whole lot we can learn from them. Thanks for listening to The Readback. If you're a new listener, welcome. If you've been listening for a while, we're glad to have you back. Either way, we'd love to know what you think of the show. Please leave a review if you listen on Apple Podcasts. Reviews make it easier for others to find the show. You can also email us at thereadback at Thanks to Kathleen Smith, Henry Ellenbogen, and Aswath Damodaran. And for more coverage on IPOs, you can check out Barron's.com. I'm Alex Ewell. The Readback is produced by Meta Lutoft and Katie Ferguson. Melissa Haggerty is our executive producer. Next week on the show, 
Moderna's IPO was brushed off by investors. Now it's saving the world. The way we think about biotech IPOs has to be very different from the way you think about traditional IPOs. And I even had some fairly smart, you know, investors and actually personal friends who thought that it might be like a Theranos. You got to remember that until a couple of months ago, no mRNA-based drug had ever been put into phase three trials, never mind approved. We'll be back next week. This message comes from Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive, with no children and no casinos. Discover more at viking.com.